0: You may have noticed things are different this morning. Yeah, I'll tell you why in just a sec. But before we do that, how many of you guys are familiar with the inner workings of the Seahawks organization? The, before the game, Sherm, I hate that we traded him. He gathered the team, he gathered the key players, especially the defense, and this is what they would do. they get together and say, We all we got. And you say, We all we got. We all we need. Well, that was lame. We all, we all we got. We all we, got. We, all we, need. we all we need. Right, okay, but that's not true for us as a church, is it? Right, It's a great chant. It gets everybody pumped up. It's that it's unifying, we're together in this endeavor, we're, we're doing this together, we need each other, but when we say that as a church, it's not entirely true. We're not all we have, uh, nor are we even together as the body, all that we need, and it. It would behoove us to think of one another, though, I think as more vital and needful than we typically do, right? Uh, This morning's environment is meant to shock you. It's meant to irritate you. I hope that some of you are irritated. Where's the TV? Where's the curtain? Where's the, right? I hope this is just a little bit, just just a little bit of irritant this morning to get you to think about uh, what church is actually supposed to be. What is church? Um, we're, we're only 15 months old as a little church and already we have calcification and hardening when it comes to what we expect from Sunday morning and my job as your shepherd is to break up that calcification and and make it go away right to keep us fresh to keep us growing in our hearts so as we begin this morning stripped down of all our trappings I want you to be cognizant of two really important realities as we go to the text Number one, the situation in which you find yourselves currently at this moment is still infinitely better than what the vast majority of our brothers and sisters experience all around the world when it comes to meeting together and worshiping and hearing the word of God. We're in a government building, right? I mean, our brothers and sisters in China can't go to the government and say, can we rent space? Like, so, oh, we've been looking for you guys, right? They just get arrested on the spot. What we have right now, even with everything stripped down, and we're a pretty lean church. I mean, we do church in a box. It's not like we're looking for extra stuff to haul every week, right? But, but we still have it infinitely better, And the reason that I think our enemy goes to such great lengths to make it hard for Christians around the world to meet together is because there is power. When God's people gather and worship him, they submit to his word and pray together with one heart. And that power that we so lack leads me to the second reality that I want to bring to the forefront of your attention this morning. I believe that if God withdrew his Holy Spirit from the world tomorrow, which I know that he wouldn't do because he wouldn't leave the church without the Spirit. He's down po- the deposit on our inheritance. That's not gonna happen. But if he did, I think most of what we do as the church could easily continue on without his presence. And that speaks to what we're doing in the flesh instead of what we're doing in the Spirit. I long for us to be a people of fervent and vibrant prayer who regularly see God manifesting among us as he provides according to his riches and glory. And so this morning, I I want us to remember that we're not any better than our brothers and sisters around the world right now, huddled in huts, meeting in caves, singing in hushed voices in the middle of the night so as to not draw attention to themselves from the authorities. This morning, we draw attention to our need and we put aside the works of the flesh and we throw ourselves on the mercy and power of God because we want to see the Great Commission accomplished. We want to see Christ manifested among his people. And and so when he does that, when Christ manifests his presence in the church, there are some particular realities that accompany that manifestation of his presence. And that's where I want to take us to 1 John chapter three this morning and talk about some of those realities. 1 John chapter three, verses 11 to 23, and the words are not going to be on the screen for you this morning because we don't have any screens. So you're you actually gonna have to open your Bible or, or pull out your smartphone. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles right back on the table. That's our gift to you. Take one of those. Well, let's read together 1 John 3, 11 to 23. John writing, he says, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's, righteous. Do not be surprised brothers that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. And by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he has commanded us. So number one, straight out of the block, really clear, the admonition to love one another. And then John's going to give us Cain and Abel as a study in contrast. So I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter four, and I want to just read you this excerpt from Genesis four, the story of Cain and Abel. Genesis says, Adam and Eve, uh, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock, And of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your doors. Desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. So let me just stop there and just say, uh, one of the things happening with Cain and Abel, uh, they they are the first children of Adam and Eve, and they certainly know, certainly have been told that when when mom and dad sinned for the very first time, that they tried to hide themselves with fig leaves, and that God said, that's not gonna cut it. I've gotta kill something now to cover over your sin, because we know in Hebrews it says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So God had to kill an animal to make skins to cover them. And it's interesting that Adam and Eve, whether impulsively or cognizantly, we don't know, they covered their reproductive parts because there's this sense in which they understood that this now is going to be passed on to everyone that comes after us. And so we deal with sin as a result. But the other thing that's happening here, and so the the kids would have heard this story. They would know this story from mom and dad. They would have heard this. And, And so here's God saying, come and worship me. Come and worship me. And Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. He brought him an offering. It says, in the course of time, but the contrast in verse four is Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of his fat portions. That is to say, as the, as the lambs were, were birthing calves, were birthing little babies, Abel, by faith, took the first of those. Not knowing if he'd have enough, if all the other lambs would give birth, if they'd reproduce the way that he needed them to, to sustain that flock, he didn't know, but he took the first ones that were born and he brought them to the Lord as an offering in faith because he didn't know how it was going to turn out, but he knew that the first portion belonged to the Lord. That's a first fruits offering. Cain in the, in due season, uh, in the course of time brought an offering of fruit from the ground. What that means is that Cain waited until the whole harvest had come in, until he knew that he had enough for himself, enough for everything that he wanted, and he said, okay, now that I know that I'm secure, I'm gonna take this part and I'm gonna bring it to the Lord. And that's just a study in contrasts. Right, Abel is uh, exercising faith, not knowing how things are gonna turn out, but knowing that the first belongs to God and Cain is waiting to make sure he's secure and he's got everything that he wants and needs before he considers to the Lord. And so Cain spoke, verse eight, to his brother. And when they were out in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground and now you're cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it's no longer gonna to yield to you its strength. You'll be a fugitive and you will wander the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, this punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've, you've driven me away from the ground and, I, and, and from your face and, and I'm gonna be hidden. I'll be a fugitive and I'm gonna wander the earth and whoever finds me is gonna kill me. And the Lord said, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So here are the first biological offspring of our greatest grandparents, right? And already sin is having its way among them. The truth is that Cain hated his brother Abel. He despised him for loving God enough to do life on God's terms. He despised that. Cain wanted to do life on his own terms. He wanted to do life his way. And he wanted to relate to God on his own terms. But well, Matt suggests to you this morning that that same dichotomy lives in each of us as Christ followers, even born again, regenerated children of God. We struggle with our old nature, just like Cain's, wanting to do things our own way. And that old man, scripture says, has to be put to death every day. Now here's how I know that it's alive in you and me. Here's how I know. Because some Christians, and this is gonna be funny, this is a funny analogy, some, some Christians treat Jesus' bride, the church, like the free samples at Costco. I was thinking a lot about this this week because I was sneaking around Costco. <laughs> you all do this. You're laughing because you know how this works. You get that free sample, whatever the thing. For me, it's the orange chicken. Oh, that's so good. And then I was like, I'm going to go around the freezer section and take the hat off, put the jacket on and come back and get another sample, right? Because <laughs> I don't want them to know that I'm the guy that's mooching all the free stuff. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna alter my appearance just a little bit and then I'm, I'll, go, I'll go back here and get the dog food and I'll circle back, give it some time, come back through, make the quick pass on the third run, right? It's not, not stopping, oh, that's nice. I'm just like, whew, grab and go right on the third run. You, you know how this works, right? But I'm not willing to actually buy the box of orange chicken for eight ninety nine, And I could take it home, I could share it with my family, we could cook it up, it'd be a great meal, it'd be, it'd be a couple of meals, right? This is the, this is the, this is the reality. We go to great lengths to have some of the tasty Jesus product, but we're not really willing to pay for it. Take it home, give it to our family. I'm just not ready for that level of commitment. I mean, $8.99 for chicken. I don't know. Like quit. Can I just say like quit treating church like it's free Costco samples. Yeah. I mean, we want people to, who are checking us out and coming to faith to feel little pressure and, and that they can move at their own pace by the grace of God. But But we don't want people who are committed to Jesus and the local church to slink around nibbling samples every three to six weeks because they can't bring themselves to buy in wholeheartedly. That's not what we want. And so this old nature affects our thinking. We think like consumers instead of thinking like family. We don't think like family so love is the priority this is what john is saying love is the priority and then he says love the brothers so so then loving the church loving the believers becomes the first priority for the Christian. So 1 John, right, he's writing to the believers, he's writing to the church, to the brothers. He uses the term, depending on your translation, the brothers or the brethren. Um, and, and he's telling us that our love for those in the church, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, is a first priority. Now, it's not that we're to love the church exclusively. That is to say, I love you guys, but I don't love all those people out there. I don't have anything to do with them. That's just, that's we're gonna get insular real quick and um, in, inbred hillbilly-ish as a church, right? There's got to be other genetic, spiritual genetic stuff being added to the mix or we get, it, it, it start playing banjos and da 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 da. right? It's, it's not healthy, right? So it's not love the brothers exclusively. It's love the brothers as a first priority, we have uh, at our house, and this was Jen's wisdom, not mine, uh, we developed the circles of stewardship. It's just like aiming at a target. There's a there's a bullseye, there's a second circle, third circle. And in that first circle with our kids, we said your stewardship is um, your relationship with mom and dad. Is your room clean? Are you doing your schoolwork? There's just some basic stuff there that has to be stewarded well. And then if that's being stewarded well, to him who's faithful with little, more can be trusted. It seems like Jesus said that. And then and so then uh the second circle is you want to go to your friend's house and hang out for a little while. Some things in the second circle. And and then what happens in our culture is things are getting rough at home with teenage kids, especially. So I don't want to be here, I just want to go to my friend's house. Well, no, you can't use second circle as an escape from first circle. You've got to steward first circle so that you're able to take on second circle and then third, right? And so we talk about that. And that's the idea here of what John is laying out, that the, the church is that first circle of our stewardship, our relationships with each other, our love for this community of faith is that first circle. As Jesus makes this point personally, uh, Matthew 25 Verse 31 to 46. Now this is a judgment passage, but you'll see why I pulled this in just a second because he's making the point about how important his family is. This is when the son of man comes in glory with all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate the people out one from another just like a shepherd will separate sheep from goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, He will say, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom that's prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was naked, excuse me, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them and say, truly, I say to you, as you did it unto the, one of the least of these my brothers, you did it unto me. I just don't know how many people, how many pastors I've heard leave that phrase out of the text to say, our first priority is the poor in our community. Now, that's not, not a priority. That's terrible grammar. That's what that is. It's not that the poor aren't a priority for the church. But the, the, the reality is that the, pri- the first priority is the family of God. We take care of our, just think what would happen if me as a dad, I took half of my income and went around distributing it to people randomly in the street who needed money and didn't take care of my own family first. I would lose credibility. And I can't take care of everybody else before I take care of what God's given me to steward First circle. Right? And so this is Matthew twenty five, thirty one, the least of me these my brothers who are Jesus' brothers. Well Romans eight tells us we're the firstborn among many brothers. We're the children of God. We've been adopted into the family. And so Jesus says he's gonna judge nations based on how they've treated his family, because his family is his first priority. Acts 2 is the apologetic, right? The word apologetic is apologia. It, It means to give a defense or to give an answer. And the apologetic of the early church was they loved each other so well, so practically, that the culture around them began to go, what is with you guys? You take care of orphans and widows. You see that their needs are met. You love each other like nothing we've ever seen. And it was drawing people to the gospel, because they loved each other so well let me let me just read you acts 237 to 47 this is right after peter's preached his sermon on the day of pentecost which by the way is today did you know that today's pentecost when they heard this when they heard peter's sermon they were cut to the heart peter said uh, and they said to peter and to the rest of the apostles brothers what shall we do peter said to them Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for all your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and he continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now again, Pentecost, this is the Jewish feast of Shavuot. It's the Feast of Weeks, uh, that's today on the calendar. It's a commemoration of Moses going up onto Mount Sinai and receiving the law in the presence of God there with the people all around the base of the mountain, right? So you know this scene back in, back in the Old Testament. Uh, but listen to verse 42, it says, so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers and awe." Came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling all their possessions and belongings and distributing uh, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending their temple, the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what happened when the people repented and the Holy Spirit came to take up residence in them? Well, he tells us in the text, they were were devoted to being taught in the word of God. They were devoted to fellowship with other Christ followers. They were devoted to breaking bread together. I love that part. I'm all about eating a meal with all of you, right? They were devoted to prayer. Four things. And then you go, so so what are the results of a church like that? What are the results of a group of people that says we're devoted to those things? We're devoted to each other, to, to being under the word of God, to breaking bread and to praying together. Here's what happens. Awe came upon every soul. People stood in awe of God. The fear of the Lord. They shared life. They shared possessions, making sure that no one was in need. They delighted in breaking bread in each other's homes. They were glad-hearted and generous people. They had favor with all the other surrounding people. They were well thought of. And the Lord was daily adding to their number those who were being saved. Are those not the things we want as a church? Are those not the things we want? Then we have to devote ourselves to that which they devoted themselves. It's not formulaic, it's just reality. It's God's design, it's the way the church is supposed to work. We're under the we're teaching of the Word of God, we're fellowshipping and breaking bread together in our homes, and we're devoting ourselves to prayer. It's so simple. We don't need a big curtain backdrop and TV screens and all to do with that. And that's the point of this morning. We don't need all that. It's great to have it. Those are helpful aids for us. But we can be the church without all the trappings. So love is the priority. And then loving the brothers is the first priority. And then John turns another corner and he basically says, enough talk. Right? Enough. Stop talking about it and do it. Verse 16 in 1 John 3. By this we know Love. That he laid down his life for us. Jesus didn't just say, I love you guys, pat, pat, pat on the head. He showed them, he demonstrated it, he lived it. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother in need, this is the practical application, right? Yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How does that work? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. So, so John's saying enough talk, right? Put your money where your mouth is. That's the saying we use, right? And what, what, what John's talking about is generosity. Generosity is not an obligation. Generosity is a privilege. It's a privilege. And when we talk about generosity in Road, we talk about the four T's of generosity. I have three, that was three fingers. That meant four, there we go. Four fingers, um, I can get the words right. It's the math I have a problem with, right? We talk about our time, our treasure, our talent, and our touch. And the the cool thing about those is that every one of you has them. You have them in varying degrees, varying quantities, but everybody has time, everybody has treasure, everybody has talent, and everybody has touch. And those four resources are, are, are resources that all of us possess in some measure, and they are indicators, They're indicators of our heart's focus and they're indicators of our obedience to Jesus. Did you know that? They're like lights on the dashboard. They tell us just how committed our hearts are to the Lord Jesus Christ. The precious commodity, I think, that the culture once fiercely guarded and feared that the church was coming to steal away was money, The the treasure, right? But I think we've shifted as a culture. I really think that we're at a place where, in our culture, the commodity that is most ferociously guarded and the the, the fear that the church is coming to take is time and commitment, right? And the reason I know that is because I have this conversation sometimes, and and really lovely people who, um, who I care deeply about say, Well, we'll be at church if the baby naps well on Saturday. Well, we'll be at church if there aren't any Little League games this weekend. Well, we'll be at church if we feel like it. Well, we'll hey, we'll, we'll come to church just as long as the Seahawks aren't playing that morning, right? That's, that's the level of, it's a time issue. It's a stewardship of time and commitment. And this is always going to be indicative of those who are outside the church who don't know Jesus. But when those who are, who are God's people, who are called by his name, are living with that level of indifference, like what are, what are we supposed to make of that? What are we supposed to do with that when Scripture says really clearly, like the, the body, the loving of brothers and the assembling of yourselves together is something we should not forsake, but that we should delight to do to be under the teaching of the word. He says, I can listen to podcasts during my drive. Yeah, yeah, it's not the same. It's not the same. So we talk about generosity with our time, we talk about generosity with our talent, our treasure, and our touch. And maybe it'd be helpful just to unpack for you like some some of the enemies that are trying to oppose your generosity right now. There are three big ones. One is ingratitude. If you have a heart that's ungrateful, if you're not cultivating gratitude daily, you're not gonna be a generous person. If you're not grateful for what God's already given you, you're not gonna be willing, you're gonna gonna cling to it tenaciously and hoard it, right, out of fear. But when you're a grateful person and you cultivate gratitude, you're, you're more free to release the resources that God has given to you. Another enemy of generosity is waste. If we're wasteful, so I really want to be generous, but I I blew all my money on Burger King this week. Okay, that's wasteful, right? In like multiple ways, that's wasteful. Um, so but but waste, you know, waste is a funny thing. It's a perception issue. Really, because what some people think is wasteful, other people, like I was just uh, reading this week about some missionaries I know in Germany who had a Dodge van that they were using to move supplies and stuff back and forth from location to location every week. And they're having a really difficult time because they're in Germany. And there are not a lot of Dodge dealerships in Germany. And they need parts for repairs constantly. And the, the repair costs were through the roof because they had to order the parts from America and have them shipped over and wait. And, and so what they did was somebody gave them a pretty sizable donation and they, they got rid of the Dodge van and they bought a Mercedes van. And it was, it, you hear Mercedes and you go, Psh, waste. Right, except that they're in Germany and there's a Mercedes dealership on every corner, and getting that repaired was like a third of the cost of what they were spending on the Dodge van. Right, but but they lost some donors in the states because people saw the Mercedes purchase, said you guys are being wasteful with my money when they actually weren't. So waste can be a perception issue, okay? But ingratitude, waste, and then duplicity. Duplicity is an enemy of generosity, because if I tell you, well, we're going to give to this big thing and this community-wide effort, and you're like, oh, I want to be generous to that, and I come back and say, well, you know, we spent half of that on um, a new car for me, like that kind of duplicity kills generosity, doesn't it? You'd be really angry. Um, so enemies of generosity. But let me, let me talk to you about motivating your generosity there's like a spectrum. There's really bad motivators for generosity and there's really good motivators. I'm peeling back the curtain. Our team talks about this sometimes, like how do we motivate people, right? And and so I say, don't, like, let's start with the lowest forms of motivation, the worst forms of motivation. One is guilt, shame, and fear, okay? Guilt, shame, and fear, that's baseline lowest motivation. You can shame people into giving, but it's not sustainable. And people will get tired of that and they'll leave, right? You You could appeal to duty and responsibility, Right? Um, this is when the pastor gets up in the church every week says, we just our kids we just can 't have any child care anymore unless somebody goes in there and takes on the role of child care coordinator right that is a sense of duty and responsibility and somebody 's going to step up and do that, but not because they 're called to it but because they have a sense of duty they 're going to step into that role then that need driven um, motivation those those are bad motives for generosity Th- those motives might actually prompt people to be generous with their time talent treasure or touch but not with a right heart and not in a way that 's sustainable over time the good motive moving from good to best, here, here they are, personal benefit, right? Personal benefit. Um, now, that sounds really selfish. I so say, this is a you're gonna be blessed by God if you give. I'm not getting all Joel Osteen. I'm just telling you straight up, like God loves to, he loves a cheerful giver and he loves to bless those who are generous. And you go, well, I don't like that. That sounds really selfish. But it was Jesus who said, um, great is your reward in heaven. So there are some rewards waiting for you. Um, this is just a then reward not a now reward so so delayed gratification. And then another good motive is, is the impact or the opportunity, the vision of what that generosity can do in the lives of people and in a community. And we talk all the time about Japan being less than half of 1% Christian and the impact that we're having in Japan. That's a, that's a powerful motivator. It's the one that I, par- I use more than any other one. I pound that into you every week, like the vision of what generosity can do around the world. But the highest and the best motive for generosity, Guess what it is? It's love. It's love. It's relationship. It's identifying with a body of people that you commune with and have community with. That's the best motivation. And this is what Jesus is getting at. Like you can't say, I love God and I know that my brother needs this stuff and he's not gonna be okay if I don't, if, if he doesn't get it, but I'm just gonna, I'm gonna ignore that. That just doesn't work. It's not the way God set it up. We have these passions, we have these desires, and they've got to be funneled towards God's kingdom. Peter says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, right? Don't be conformed to the things that you used to run after because you're trying to find your identity in this world. But as he who called you is holy, so be holy in your conduct, since it's written, be holy because I'm holy. God said that, right? So then the passions of this world. I really was saving all my money for a Maserati because I think that's going to fulfill me as a person. And God says, bump that off the list and invest in the kingdom and in your brothers in Christ. The Maserati is going to burn along with everything else in the judgment. Invest in the eternal and care for the brothers. Romans 8, 2829 we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes he says for those he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers does you see the language here like forsaking the passions of this world pursuing holiness now we're talking about being conformed to transformed shaped changed romans 12 1 and 2 uh, paul says i appeal to you brothers by the mercies of god present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship do not be conformed anymore to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of god what is good and acceptable and perfect so conformed transformed holiness, living sacrifice. This is all talk about the process by which God makes holy those who put their faith in Jesus. Those who hope in God are being made to become like God and his character. So when God gives, what's his motive? When God gives, what is his motive? Well, certainly there's benefit. I mean, not, not in the sense that God needs anything to be added to him but he delights in giving because that's in keeping with his character. He delights in it. Certainly there's impact from his generosity. I mean, giving us the sun is the single most impactful act in all of human history. There's nothing else that comes close to having the effect on the entire universe as that one generous act on the part of God. But the chief motive is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him might have eternal life and not perish. The chief motive is love. And it's when we choose to be generous with our time and treasure and talent and touch, and our chief motive is love, and we are being most like our heavenly father. We are most walking in his footsteps. And so John would say love is the priority. And loving the brothers is the first priority. And that love has to manifest Practically, and then, and then here at the end of this section, John just kind of sums everything up to this point. He says, here are the expressly stated purposes of John in writing, I mean, really the spirit writing through John, but to the church, he says that we might have confidence before God, that word confidence, con means with, and fide is the Latin for faith. We stand before God with faith. We have confidence that we might delight at his coming that we might ask for these things that we lack and that we need and receive them. And in the process of receiving them, our faith is grown. That we might keep God's commandments. And He says they're not burdensome to love one another, to abide in the Spirit of Christ, and to let Christ abide in us. I, that's not overly difficult unless you're fully immersed in the world unless you're, the, the world has its tentacles in you trying to hold on to you, then it becomes difficult. So on Pentecost, I wanna just tie all this together. I wanna to tie this all together for us with Paul's explanation of Christ's fulfillment of this feast in 2 Corinthians 3. Today's the day of Pentecost. Today's the day when God uh, met with his people we commemorate this day. And, he, and there at Mount Sinai, God came down to his people and law came forth and 3,000 people died. And then in Acts chapter two, on Pentecost, God came down to meet with his people and the spirit issued forth from God and 3,000 people came to life. I'm sure that's just a coincidence. I'm sure that's just a coincidence unless maybe God's trying to give us a picture that the law kills and the spirit gives life. Well, let's see what the text says, Second Corinthians 3. Paul says, are we, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Do we need, as some other people do, letters of recommendation to you or, or letters of recommendation from you? This was the thing with these super apostles that were making the preaching circuit in the first century saying, we have all these letters of recommendation from really famous people. That's why you should accept us. And Paul's like, I, I, I planted your church. <laughs> Do I need a letter of recommendation? He says, you are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all and you show that you're a letter from Christ delivered by us. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You see the contrast already? Like the law was written on tablets of stone What does Ezekiel say? He's going to give you a new heart. He'll write his law on your heart not with ink but with the spirit of the living God. You see, so already Paul setting up the contrast here. He says such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant not of the letter but of the spirit for the letter kills but the spirit gives life. That's that Pentecost contrast. The first Pentecost, 3,000 people die. The, the New Testament, New covenant Pentecost 3,000 people come to life and Paul's drawing that contrast so he says in verse 7 now if the ministry of death wow God had a ministry of death yeah the old covenant was a ministry of death because you couldn't possibly keep the old covenant you couldn't keep the law he said it was carved in letters on stone but that old covenant ministry of death came with so much glory that the Israelites couldn't even look at Moses' face because of its glory and that was being brought to an end will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in a ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, Old Covenant, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it, new covenant. For if that which was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will that which is permanent have glory? Do you see this? Back and forth, old, new, old, new, old, new, right? Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. We're not like Moses. He put a veil over his face so that the Israelites couldn't gaze at the outcome of that was just coming to an end. He didn't want them to see that the the radiance of the presence of God was fading from his face. It wasn't sustainable, it was going to fade. And he didn't want them to know. And so their minds were hardened, verse 14. For even to this day, when they read the old covenant, that veil remains unlifted because only in Christ is it taken away. Yes, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the spirit of the Lord, now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Moses stood in the presence of God and saw him face to face and he was radiant, but that radiance was fading because it was an old covenant and he didn't have the Holy Spirit in him. And we get to stand in the presence of God and see him face to face and not have the covenant fade and the glory fade, but actually have the glory and the grace transform us to become more like God. That's crazy insane. And that's what Jesus purchased for us at the cross. So where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Freedom to what? Freedom to sin? No. No. Freedom to pursue the flesh? No. Uh, Freedom to get whipped into a frenzy with lights and smoke machines and get down on your knees and bark like a dog? No. No. That's not the freedom here. The freedom is to not have to hide ourselves like Moses. It's not to fear a fading covenant. The freedom here is to walk in the grace of God. Freedom to love God, love people, live generously. That's the freedom that's offered us again on Pentecost. So love is the priority. Loving the brothers is the first priority. And that love has to manifest practically because it demonstrates our new life in Christ and it assures our hearts before him. Lord, would you meet us in that place of our need as we process these truths this morning, as we respond to you in worship. God, would you make us a loving church and would we love one another as a first priority. We wanna love the lost. We wanna love our community. We wanna serve them. But as a matter of first priority, would you give us a love for one another that exceeds the other love? Would you birth in us a commitment and a desire and an excitement and an exuberance for the body of Christ? I ask that you do this for us in the name of Jesus. Amen.